Hello and welcome to another episode of the Hackable You podcast. This is episode 18. Uh, we're almost at Christmas. We're counting down the days. Even Black Friday comes first. Black Friday this Friday. Guys, are you going to be scooping up any deals in the Black Friday sales? What have you got your eyes on? I've already been doing some IoT shopping. Oh, Got myself some got? Alexa um, light bulbs. Got myself an Alexa radiator. It's all going on. Uh, an Alexa radiator. Yeah. Oh, you know what? My Alexa's oh. talking in the background now. Alexa, be quiet. <laughs> Alexa. <laughs> Don't start. But yeah, when I'm cold, Alexa turn on the heat and she goes for it. So really good. Will, what have you got your eyes on this Black Friday? Uh, well, I've kind of spent all my money already. <laughs> um, mostly on Apple Kit because I've become an absolute Apple. Oh uh, yeah, you've got um, your new Apple Watch, haven't you? You love flashing that. I've got my new Apple Watch, which I actually really like. Um, I've also bought two um, HomePod Minis. Two? Um, oh, get you. One for my office and one for the kitchen. Um, and uh, a pair of, um, uh, what are they called? AirPods Pros. Oh wow, you really yeah. have turned into an Apple I've anchor. T- I, I, think I've, I think I've lost it. <laughs> I'm going to need some sort of rehab after this. I've totally lost a plot, I think. No, no, it's fine. That's what Apple wants you to be indoctrinated into their uh, into their schemes. That's fine. It's, it's it's difficult because everything just works so well together. And yeah. I know that's the whole convenience is king, isn't it, with Apple? Yeah, absolutely. But it, that's, it's difficult because it just works really well. You know, I just, I just, it's, it's, that kind of, that convenience is a bit addicting after a while. It is, yeah. No, I know exactly what you mean. And between the three of us, so I've, I'm, I'm Google Home. I've got Google everywhere. Alex has got Alexa and you've got Apple, so I think we've got a good test bed here for for seeing what works and what doesn't, right? <laughs> we've got it all covered, all bases covered. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, we've got a great podcast lined up for you this week. And without further ado, let's jump into the cybersecurity news for this episode. Here we are, cybersecurity news for this week. Three interesting topics to talk about, the first of which being the Citoday data breach collection. This week, it has been reported there is a new massive data breach collection. The data set dubbed Citoday gathers together a total of more than 23,000 different data sets. Like a Russian doll, the zip data was sorted into various files and .rar files. In a recent blog by Troy Hunt, the man behind Have I Been Pwned, it states there are and I have to get this number right, so bear with me. 226,883,414 unique email addresses with the majority having an MD5 hashed pair. The last data set similar to this nature was collections number one to five, which caused a fair amount of work for both an attacker and the defender point of view. With attackers using these credentials to launch mass account takeover campaigns or credential stuffing, and defenders quickly assessing if there are any organisation accounts that need to be addressed. It's a metric fuck ton of data here, guys. What do you make of this one? Quite intrigued to see where it's come from, to be honest. And I don't know if we ever will um, find out specifically how it's come about. Um, but it's a lot of data. And the article from Troy Hunt is really, really interesting. And I, I do recommend everyone goes to and has a good read. Um, he makes a really, really good point around um, password verification. Uh, so he runs the service or he's he's on the board for the service one password um which I, I believe is a password manager but he has uh yep i've got it it's really do good. you oh, highly recommend what, it over last pass highly recommend what a it. fanboy <laughs> hey. is that the one that also tells you if the password you're using has been compromised 
Yeah, so they've got a feature called Watchtower, which essentially links into having been pwned, which when the site gets compromised or the password's compromised, it flags to you that you need to change the password. Yeah, so Troy Hunt raised a really good point on that about um, collision. So um, MD5 and SHA hash, hash collision. So as you know, the passwords get hashed and they compare the hashes with each other. Well, if there's, some, if, if there's hash, hash collision, which I can't really say properly, <laughs> then, <laughs> <Quit drinking. laughs> then you may be told that your password has been compromised when it actually hasn't. I think uh, what I find really interesting on this particular post is if you read the uh, the blog on uh, his website, Troy Hunt's blog, he, he literally goes into the data set. He finds accounts of particular mail accounts that have no privacy sort of implied and he, he uses the password. He logs into the mail account. He then goes to the, the site where the supposed data breach had happened and, and kind of forces the password reset to verify whether the account's real and the data is trustworthy or not. I just thought, was, just thought it was excellent. In most cases, people probably wouldn't bother going to do that, but Troyer uh, has been quite proactive to just using the data set in uh, the way an attacker would to try and prove if it's legitimate or not. A real basic but simple way of, of getting to the outcome. But he's been very careful to point out that the accounts um, are public mail uh, providers that have no expectation of privacy just to avoid himself getting any, into any hot water. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, it quotes, I'm conscious I'm showing actual email addresses and or either passwords or reset tokens in the images above. But again, and in italics, these are very clearly test accounts with no expectation of privacy. Yeah, absolutely right. But good good on Troy Hunt for doing that. It's a really interesting article. Definitely go, uh, go and read if you have the time to do so over the next few days. Next up looks at a major business email compromise group that have been cracked with three arrests. Three men suspected of being involved in a substantial Beck campaign have been arrested in Lagos, Nigeria. A joint investigation, including the likes of Interpol, investigated the threat group who are believed to have ties to the distribution of malware and extensive scams worldwide. Upon a successful account compromise, the group was seen to spread 26 different malware variants such as Loki, Azeroth and Nanocore. According to Group IB, the gang in question were believed to have compromised government entities and private sector companies in more than 150 countries since 2017. It's great to see news like this. Whilst these groups may not be considered as an advanced persistent threat or have the spotlight like many state-sponsored actors do, a gang like this can still deal serious harm to many organisations. I think it's awesome that they're doing so well. To be honest, I think, I, I, as you just pointed out there in that last in that last line of the article, the spotlight's not on them, so they're quietly in the background. They're doing their thing, making a huge ton of money. Um, so you know they may not be making as much as some of the APTs out there, or some of the big ransomware, double extortion, next gen ransomware names that we're seeing out there these days, but. They're doing their own thing and they're making as much money as they see as acceptable. And because the spotlight's not on them, they're having a real uh, a real successful time. I can't help but think Nigeria get a bad rep way too much and this doesn't give them any credit here, does it? Well, it comes back to the whole 419 scam, doesn't it? The whole uh, Nigerian prince, please send me some money for your inheritance sort of thing. <laughs> like that, Yeah, exactly. They were sort of set up to fail, weren't they? I know, right? And, and what what is more interesting here, I think, is business email compromise is so prevalent as we can see from groups like this being successful but majority of cases goes undetected you know some account is fished they go in they create kind of forwarding rules or or other types of inbox rules that allow them to get information or data whatever it might be and relatively goes undetected but is a constant headache that people keep seeing it's as simple as phishing 
goes straight back down to kind of user awareness again. Falling foul to BEC is actually probably more common than phishing and as you say it's harder to detect it goes unnoticed because with your phishing you're being sent malware you're being sent a phishing link but with your BEC you're being socially engineered you're being spoken to as if you're already part of that email chain and you'll have no reason to suspect anything un unusual if I as part of Hackable U are I'm, I'm due to pay an invoice to a certain company and I see someone coming from that company or from a very similar domain to that company and they ask me to change bank details um, I might not necessarily think that's a bad thing if I'm, if I'm under pressure, you know, there's no link. And if all my training is telling me to look out for links and to look out for malware, if I'm being told to wire some money to somewhere else when I know I owe money, might might not twig in my mind. Absolutely. It's a good point to raise, actually. It goes back down to those, the reasons why attackers are so successful. It's that innate uh, trust that we have as humans, but also, you know, using legitimate means by spoofing as an exec or spoofing as someone that's, um, already in communication with you based on the conversation that's already happened. It's very easy just to kind of slide in at the right point at the right time and, and be successful. Just on that point there, saying slide in, I saw something on Instagram earlier on, which was someone pretending to be Andy Murray, and they'd slid, slid into someone's DMs, and they said, I need some money for a new racket. Can you send me your credit card details? <laughs> sort of the next gen of the BEC is sliding into DMs on Instagram. Look, it's not Andy Murray's fault. He's injured. He can't play anymore, and he's probably not getting any prize money. Just the uh, Alex and uh, Ed. <laughs> <laughs> Leave that in there. Leave that in there. And last up this week is the story around Manchester United disclosing a security breach. Late last Friday, Premier League football club Manchester United disclosed a cybersecurity incident that impacted its internal systems. The club stated that the assessment is still underway to understand if any customer data has been impacted and don't disclose much more other than saying the incident did not impact any primary media channels such as the website or the mobile app. With COVID having a significant impact on clubs' income from the loss of ticket sales, if an incident like this incurs an ICO fine, the club's finances will take another brutal hit. However, between you and me, I think they'll be okay, judging by the salaries they pay some of the players. Yeah, I, I think what this kind of goes to show is that, um, well, I mean, I'm, I'm not a massive football fan, I'm just going to say it up front. You know, I'm, I never have been. Um, so, but I've always been much more of a, uh, of a rugby fan. I think Ed will, uh, Ed will agree with me, Absolutely. I think. Absolutely. Um, but I've never really thought about the idea of, people kind of targeting, you know, football clubs in any large, um, you know, in, in any large capacity. Part of that is perhaps because I have absolutely zero interest in football. So, so maybe that's where it comes from. But I think it shows that actually, you know, that there's, you know, even the most kind of obscure targets are still are still relevant targets for, for a lot of these actors. Absolutely. Look at Manchester United, right? They are a, a globally recognised football club with fans across the world. They have more money than a significant number of private sector companies. And and it is very easy to understand some of their kind of footprint. You know, for a football club, they've got big physical presence. They clearly have an IT operation that's running e-commerce transactions for ticket sales, a number of routes in through suppliers and sponsors and all these sorts of things. As an attacker's point of view, all right, a football club might not come across as your kind of general FTSE 100 type company, but definitely does pose a significant gold mine if you manage to get the crown jewels 
it swings and roundabouts right it's, it's it comes down to that thing where it's like a company thinking oh you know what we're not quite big enough or we're not quite attractive enough for an attacker but there's data somewhere for everyone and in relative scales everyone's important to an attacker in their own way definitely i think there's two ways you look at that right people that say oh i'm not big enough to be targeted by an attacker well okay yeah you might not be big enough to get the attention of some of the, the massive advanced persistent threats out there that are really targeting big tech conglomerates and finance companies, but majority of attackers and threat actors, they don't care the size of you. You're just a number. You're just a victim that can be targeted and popped for their own gain. But then you look on the flip side of things when you have these massive companies that know they'll be targeted, who are putting a lot of kind of time, effort, money into their defences and still struggle to defend against some of the most critical attacks because you know, they know they're being targeted and eventually attackers will win in some way, shape or form. I mean, I know, I know we're not going to find this out, but I would have been really interested, interested in in, um, in how Manchester United as a football club, as, as an organisation, how they saw um, their themselves as, as potential targets. You know, did they see themselves as a very legitimate target for this sort of thing or, you know, or were they a bit kind of, I guess, a bit like me where they thought, you know, why would anyone want to target a football club? Um you know, I think that would be really interesting to find out, but unlikely for us to find out. Oh, I'm reading the article right when it states around they suffered a cybersecurity incident that impacted their internal systems. Like, just open forum, right? What What's your first thought when you hear that? I mean, my, my first thought is some sort of DDoS or ransomware. Um, ransomware, right? Yeah, straight um, away ransomware. I was yeah, like, ransomware. that's ransomware. They called it sophisticated, which we know is just like common speak for we don't know what happened sort of thing like sophisticated doesn't mean anything. we didn't know what happened <laughs> yeah we didn't know what happened or the response to it wasn't as simple as we thought it would be exactly that yeah so yeah yeah, yeah. will you're right you know who knows why they thought they're attackers i think this is probably just ransomware maybe it's ransomware kind of throwing throughout the ether rather than a direct target but either way you know there's going to be a significant impact against the club here but they'll still be kicking a football around on Saturdays and Sundays, and I don't think it's going to impact them that much, if I'm honest. And that wraps up the cybersecurity news for this week. Let us hop into the topic of the week. Okay, topic of the week this week. It's the final instalment of our three-part series where we look at black hat hackers, aka the bad guys, the reason we all have jobs in the cybersecurity industry. It may seem pretty simple. They are the polar opposite of the white hat hackers, which we talked about two episodes ago. Yet there's a little more to it. And what we want to do today is delve into the different types of malicious attacker, the different types of black hat hacker that there are, and just give you a bit of an eye opening into what they do, why they do it, and why they're considered to be part of that category. So guys, we'll probably do a bit of a round robin here and uh, and just chip in with your thoughts as and when we go. So I want to organise this in terms of uh, kind of their their skill level, their complexity and their capability. So right at the first start are your most basic type attackers. And I've got down script kiddies here. So a script kiddie essentially is an unskilled hacker that uses scripts or pre-built tools that have been developed by real hackers uh, for their own game. Someone that probably knows their way around Kali Linux but doesn't pose a massive threat to government entities and, and nation states but still probably could be successful at phishing, maybe email compromise and some low-level malware type activity. What do you see the threat from script, script kiddies being here in your day jobs? 
I think it's um it's it's really easy, isn't isn't it, to kind of disregard uh, script kiddies and say, oh, you know, they're they're uh, they're low down on in 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 the threats of yeah. things, especially when, especially on the top end of that, you've got you know APTs. But um, but actually, you know, if we think back to you know a big breach um, in I can't remember the year, but the Talk Talk breach. Oh yeah, twenty twelve. That was years ago. That was a long time ago. And it, I mean, I think it was probably one of the first big breaches that I heard about certainly um, and you know that that breach was I think um, you know was quite a young person who whose skill level probably wasn't much beyond that really from what I understand and from what I remember you know essentially um, executing an, a, a, a quite a basic SQL attack mm. you know against TorTalk and caused you know millions of pounds worth of you know damage and loss so you know if your if your security posture is 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 poor Enough, then a script kiddie is is you know potentially just as damaging as a as, as an APC. Yeah, if, you, in, if in you're some just ways. pointing and clicking somewhere like SQL map and that externally exposed SQL server quids in, right? It's quite easy, quite simple. And in 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 real honesty, if that's the route in, then anyone from a script kiddie right the way through to an advanced persistent threat is likely going to use that as a as a as a you know an exploit they can run. I'd like to think that I'll start that again. I'd like to make sure that the script kiddies are not underestimated because as as you say, all it takes is that simple foothold and that could come from a credential stuffing attack, that could come from a brute force dictionary attack, something that seems very, very simple. But if the, the, if the right target is there, all it takes is that one lapse in judgment from a user to click on a link or that one gap in a security control. Um, script kiddie or not that's someone that's going to have a foothold on your network and you know whether they know what to do with that foothold is a different story but the fact is they are in and as technologies change security postures improve defenses get more complex the skills of those script kiddies the scripts they're using uh, get a little bit more complex and i think everyone just kind of raises the bar slowly so you know will you mentioned the talk talk breach way back when that was that script kiddie nowadays probably you know wouldn't be successful against modern day type exploits and, and hacks and stuff if they were using the same techniques. But if they were to be up to date with the kind of current tools that are out there um, and stuff that you might find within pre-built hacking OSs like Kali Linux, they're that little bit more complex. You need to have a little bit more understanding about what you're doing in order to be successful and everyone else kind of their skill levels increase across the board, right? Yeah, and, and I think there's no, you know, what you could have, I mean, I'm don't get me wrong. You know, I'm not big enough script kiddies. I'm not saying that they are, you know, on par with with APTs. But you know, I think we have, we have to bear in mind that yes, they're using you know they're, they're probably just you know using simple scripts that you know to to execute these. But those scripts were more 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 often than not made by a collaboration of of a lot of very very good yeah. you know hackers and pen. So the what I'm saying is is that the scripts out there are very very good at what they do. So you know that script alone, you know, could be, could be enough. Um, you know, even if even if it's just fired off, um, you know, it's it's not the case anymore that you know those scripts are just you know very very simple in nature. They're they're complex and they're powerful. So you know you had to bear that in mind. I think. So question. So so question for both of you guys then. Where where do you see the future of script kiddies going? So from from my opinion, it, you know, with the. Uh, with the advent of platforms like Metasploit and Kali Linux, it only makes these things easier to do and easier to point and click and to perform these sorts of attacks. So what's your view on what we can see next? 
I just think that those tools will become more complex. Evasion techniques will become more common. Um, I don't see a massive change in the in the process. For, and by that I mean real attackers, more complex attackers creating code, creating tools and proof of concepts and tools or whatever, and script keys using them. I don't think that will ever change. I think it would just become easier and more common. And whereas nowadays a script kiddie might target their local pizza company or uh, you know their school that they're at because they're quite young with the advent of these tools and the ease of use and how popular they are you might find that script kiddies start targeting slightly larger targets and larger organizations just because it's so easy getting a bit braver so second on the list i've got hacktivists this is an individual who promote a political agenda by hacking or disrupting their victim these guys often use ddos distributed denial of service or website defacement. Uh, they're probably skill levels around the same as a script kiddie, but they they target websites, they target uh, uh, victims for pure, uh, to prove a point, uh, to prove a political motive. Uh, the best kind of uh, example I can give of this is anonymous to so anonymous collective. They're not a they're not considered an advanced position threat or a hacking group, but they are, you know, a, a collective of people who often carry out hacktivist operations. Way back when, uh, Anonymous was seen to target PayPal and bring PayPal down um, by sending a DDoS attack against PayPal servers. That's the type of activity a hacktivist might might achieve. Tend to be a little bit annoying, there to try and prove a point, but the real threat that they pose against data loss or cybersecurity incidents, I wouldn't say is massively significant. Thoughts? I think, I think the way that I've always thought about um, hacktivists from a... Uh, at least from a skill level, is they're kind of much more like they're just organised, organised script. Yeah, yeah, a collective of them. It's like the collective now, yeah. isn't it? Like you have a shawl exactly, yeah. or a gaggle of geese. It's a, a hacktivist of script kiddies, right? Oh, yes. Yeah, <laughs> and, and that's what I've always kind of seen it as. And I think that you know, whilst there are you know their, their objectives as a hacktivist is obviously you know niched in in politics or you know um, something similar. Um, you know, but I, I don't feel like it's a, and I, I could be completely wrong about this, uh, I probably am, but I don't really feel like it's as big as it used to be. Yeah, it has its time and place. Like with Brexit was going on or the general election in the UK, Theresa May's website was brought down. I just think it's, to most people, it's a, a bit like waters off the duck's back, water off a duck's back. But they, they, definitely, they definitely have their place and can, can achieve some form of goal of proving a point or disrupting an operation when absolutely necessary. But I just think, you know, if you really want to to, to prove a point, if you really want to stop something happening and, and force a political agenda on someone, being able to take control of data or really interrupt their operations maliciously without kind of the ddos type techniques are more successful and, and leave a lasting mark compared to just a bit of an annoying headache. And a controversial point, for me is that you could liken them in the physical world to a movement such as extinction rebellion where they are purely just just causing disruption you know they are just they are they are blocking roads they are gathering in places they are upsetting people's day-to-day business they're just a, a, a thought they're, they're a pain in the backside they are they are blocking roads and they are causing disruption without in in some instances without significant criminality they are just causing yeah. a pain to prove a point 
So next we have cyber terrorists, fairly skilled hackers that are motivated by political or religious beliefs to create mass fear and harm to the population. Something that I've studied in the past and uh, something that I find really interesting. Cyber terrorists represent a significant threat to people. We've spoken, I think, on the podcast about the difference between a terrorist use of ICT and a cyber terrorist, right? So just to clarify again, a terrorist use of ICT would be using things like encrypted chat messages or channels to plan and facilitate attacks, whereas a cyber terrorist would be someone that uses technology and, and hacking techniques to cause the disruption. So, you know, whereas terrorist use of ICT using something like EncroChat compared to a terrorist targeting the uh, TFL London Underground to try and derail the train, right? Different levels of uh, of impact there. Cyber terrorists, they do exist. They represent a significant threat. Not much is publicised about that. You tend to see more of the kind of physical threats from terrorism, especially in kind of England and America. But they do exist and they do represent a significant threat. Wouldn't really tend to be seen targeting an organisation, though, because that's not really the motive behind most terrorists. I haven't called it ICT since um, I was doing my A-levels. That's, 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 that's more than 10 years ago. Did I say ICT? ICT. I haven't called it that in absolutely forever oh, information communication technology literally yeah. haven't Gosh, put that a in a very very yeah. long time i did it at a levels and it was called it so well, that's because you're about 12 that's why but <laughs> but um cyber terrorism is yeah as as you say not something to be messed with not something you will always hear about in everyday um news and will will often target your sort of critical infrastructure uh you know your gas your electric your transportation hubs rather than going after any one specific company they aim to have a maximum impact and there's no question around their motives you know when you look at gray hats you see okay they're they're on the borderline but uh cyber terrorism is clearly out for one purpose i think part of the reason perhaps why we don't see a um see much of it in the news and stuff like that is is perhaps it's sometimes kind of associated and attributed to just sort of general nation nation state activities yeah instead. that's a fair point actually you know, someone's attacking the the national grid um you know, it could be a cyber terrorist or you know it could be a, a nation state it could be both in some weird way well, i don't know but do you know what i mean i think there's a there's a little bit of a gray area there between you know cyber terrorism and nation state especially when you're you know t- typical terrorism you know in, in the uk is is quite uh dry cut isn't it it's normally, a, you know, someone with a political motive that, you know, does something, sets off a bomb or, you know, kills people or whatever. Um, well, but when it comes to cyber, you know, you, you lose that clear boundary. Yeah. So I think sometimes things can, some categories can get mixed up. So next up, we look at the top tiers and of capability and skill levels. Firstly, state-sponsored hackers. So I think we've mentioned it a couple of times in passing for the last few, but State-sponsored hackers are groups who have access to the resources and finances of an entire state or nation, often used to impact political unrest or change in the world, or to ascertain another nation's secrets. There is a lot of intelligence around different types of state-sponsored actors. We'll come on to advanced persistent threats next. They often put in the same banner, but you know, state-sponsored hackers represent a significant threat to the globe. They have the money of a government and the resources and backing of a government, um, but are left and dealt with in a very kind of secretive way and they often achieve exactly what they set out to do. I was going to say they're probably one of the most scary but actually I think 
I will backtrack on that and say it actually depends. Is 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 Flossie in her independent retail shop really going to be concerned about that? Probably not. Um, but they are definitely. It's a good point, right? And this is and this is how I've always explained it to an executive, especially in companies that have that attitude, like state-sponsored attackers aren't going to come after me because I work in retail. You have to look at the size and scale of an organization, right? If if you're after a government entity, if you're after government secrets, whatever it might be, there there are many routes that someone can take. But if you're a significant organization that have a footprint nationally or even internationally, you are a target because you could be a, a perceivable stepping stone. You know, if you're looking at targeting getting into a government, okay, going directly after the government is one way. Getting into the supply chain, supply chain attacks, finding out who supplies the government their coffee, right? Popping that company because you realise the coffee machines are network enabled. All of a sudden, you have a relevant stepping stone, a supply chain attack to get into a government network and then move around to achieve your actions and objectives. So whereas I totally agree that most people generally be like, well, you know, I work in said company, I'm not going to be targeted by a state-sponsored attacker. Absolutely, you might be because you could be the crucial stepping stone into a critical network or critical infrastructure. Yeah, just think, think of your wider footprint. So last up, we have what I consider to be the most skilled, the most capable threat groups. And these would be Advanced Persistent Threats, or APTs, arguably a subcategory because, like we mentioned, state-sponsored attackers, cyber terrorists could all be part of an Advanced Persistent Threat. However, it's in a group with extensive skills and resources that continue to threaten many organisations and or governments. You look at the likes of MITRE ATT&CK, Recorded Future, Digital Shadows, FireEye, all of these people that have threat intelligence backbones do a lot of digging on advanced persistent threats because they're considered to be the major threat to the globe currently. I think they provide the most exciting type of investigation and work. I'd love to be involved more in organisations that get that have to respond to attack persistent threats. For me, that would be the creme de la creme in an IR type role. Advanced persistent threats, what are your thoughts? Do you really think it's going to impact you in your day-to-day jobs? I'm not going to say no to that because the moment I say no, that's not going to impact me. It'll be the day that we get... Do it. Do it. be fun. Let's do it. No, I'm not doing it. Um, you know, it's... I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's arguably and, um, you know, routinely a, a constant kind of fear, isn't it, from 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 anyone in, in the industry. You know, the idea of you being part of a... Um, you know, victim to a to an APT is it's quite scary um, because you know most people, most organisations, you know, we're not on the same potentially not on the same you know, league as that. You know, the, the yeah, it's it's something that I think that, that absolutely rightfully people will worry about. I do argue that perhaps sometimes too much emphasis is perhaps spent on them in the idea of them being um, you know the worst, but probably a a smaller percentage of those threat actors out there if that makes yeah, sense it does, yeah. um you know so i think that there needs to be some balance there that yes you know we need to spend time and make sure that you know and i also do respect that a lot a lot of the techniques and tactics that aptes use do filter down to you know to, to everybody else as well so um you know that i do totally get that but um i think we just there needs to be some balance around you know um i guess likelihood yeah, I think just because you've seen some techniques uh, in MITRE that are used by one group doesn't mean you've been hit by an APT. Um, 
I think the scariest thing about an APT is that if you have been hit by an APT, you probably won't be knowing about it until it's much too late. They've probably been inside your organization for quite a long time. And I think this is a subject we can cover in depth on, on another podcast, but it brings home to me the importance of threat hunting and having a look in oh, your that's such a good point. Having yeah. a look in your environment for what's happening rather than just responding to what's alerting, having a deep look and dive into your into your log story and seeing what's happening. You know, who's who's sniffing around in your in your org, who who's pivoting, who's who's moving laterally that has not necessarily triggered any, any alerts. There you have it. We've ranged there from a script kiddie right the way through an advanced persistent threat, from an opportunist to a planned state-sponsored hacker. So we hope you learned something and we look forward to bringing you something very similar in the podcast in the future. Secrets from the sock this week. We had a bit of a head-scratching moment, didn't we, trying to think about what we wanted to discuss this week, didn't we? And we landed on a critical vulnerability response. Now, this surrounds the mentality or the activities when a critical vulnerability like a SEV10 CVE uh, comes in that the company has to respond to immediately. So what I want to do today, guys, is discuss a little bit about how we respond to critical vulnerabilities and what you've done in the past and what we would advise our listeners to kind of think about when they next come across the next WannaCry, Blue Keep type vulnerability. So... From my experience, having dealt with vulnerability, critical vulnerability response for both WannaCry, NotPetya, SMB Ghost, Meltdown, Spectre, I can sit here and list a number of those critical vulnerabilities that were published. It all boils down to a couple of things for me. The first thing is, as a SOC analyst, understand how a vulnerability management function works and understand how they're assessing the impact organization. That's the first thing I'd say. You've got to know where the guys are looking to see what's vulnerable. The second thing is all understanding the likelihood of the impact versus the ease of the exploitation. Many SEV10 vulnerabilities come out, but there's no public known exploits for it. Therefore, it's not that easily exploitable. The likelihood of it happening against your organization is quite low. You give yourself more time. However, for severe vulnerabilities, much like what happened surrounding WannaCry, not Petya, and other types of ransomware, WannaCry was spreading throughout the world. Its ease of exploitation was well up there. The likelihood of it happening was really high up there. Therefore, your response needs to be very, very quickly. And from an incident responder point of view, you need to be understanding where is this vulnerability trying to be exploited and has it been successful? I think one of the most important parts of dealing with said vulnerability is that initial triage. So in my mind as an incident responder, I need to understand is is this something that needs to be patched now and is this potentially being exploited in my environment now already so i need to understand the iocs the indicators of compromise for this vulnerability i need to be able to look in my environment and see is someone trying to uh, have a pop at me against one of these vulnerable servers um, but that initial triage is, is is very key because there could be a sev 10 vulnerability that comes out and it could be that the company doesn't use that version of the software therefore you're not vulnerable or it could be that there are subsequent controls in place that actually reduce the severity for the organization. So just because something is a SEV10 doesn't mean that after you've triaged it and applied some business context that it's necessarily a SEV10 at that point. On the flip side, if you do realize, okay, you are vulnerable, you then have to take that a step further to understand what does a successful exploit look like. 
You know, it's the flip side, right, from, from ruling it out to ruling it in. Once you've understood that, you now need to be looking for successful exploits being targeted against your, your industry. Like with the Apache Struts vulnerability, with many Citrix vulnerabilities that we've seen in the past, when there is a successful payload dropped in your network or against the system, you'll understand what the response looks like from the system at a web application level layer that might be a response code within an HTTP header or something similar. And you have to be able to understand and visibly see that happening. This often comes in the terms of writing custom IDS signatures where you can say, okay, if this packet has this type of factor, these type of variables in it, please flag it for my attention as a possible exploit, which then allows a SOC IR team to dig a little bit deeper to find out what was the source IP address, when did it happen, what was happening around that time, and then really understand whether you'll be exploited or not. So that's one thing I really want listeners to take away from this is understanding what a successful exploit looks like and and adapting your investigation to look for that. I mean, I you know, you two basically hit the nail on the head, I think, there. You know, I think um, from a kind of vulnerability management point of view, you know, you if you if you have a dedicated team to deal with vulnerability management, then you know, then that's that's great. Not all places do have that with due respect because, you know, it is a it is a cost. But um, you know, from from where I've worked before, you know, or currently, you know, we did, you know, we did, we did have our own team around that sort of stuff. So, um, but you know, they've they've got a list as long as you know, as long as well, as long as me, and I'm six foot two. No, you're um, not. That you're six foot it. two. I am. Are you lying? Yes. No. Nah. I will measure you. I will measure you on on camera. I've Excuse got me. A, I've got measure. That's not why I was talking to here tonight. I'll measure you on camera. All right. Don't get me excited, guys. Calm down. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted. I did not believe you were six foot two. Please carry on. You had a really good point. Well, in that case, I'm six foot four now. Fuck you. Um, If you if you've got a vulnerability management team, you know they're they're unlikely to be probably getting too excited by the next critical vulnerability that comes in because it's just another on the pile. So I think you know if you um, that that triage is really really important because until it's until until that point where someone can say you know how how much of a threat is this honestly to our to our organization that vulnerability is just another critical vulnerability on the list it goes back to those core kind of pillars foundational parts of the nist framework of identify and protect as a sock role you you need to identify where you're being impacted you need to respond to those events and protect the company that way but like you said, well, on the flip side, there's a whole potentially a whole vulnerability management team there that need to identify how many impacted their assets there are and ensure we're patch, 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 patching to stop that vulnerability from being exploited in the future. And there we have it, guys. Secrets from the SOC ending, wrapping up the podcast. Time for key takeaways. Mr. Stokes, I know you're a busy man this week, so we appreciate you being with us. But what's your key takeaway for the podcast this week? I'm going to go back to the piece on the CITO day. Uh, data breach and I want the takeaway from that to be use strong long unique passwords because if you were impacted in, in that data breach and you had a strong long unique password there would be minimal <laughs> I can't hear you say strong and long like that you said it the first time you said it I thought we'll oh, crack that's all right. we'll smile now. <laughs> I'll do that again then, shall I? 
<laughs> no, no, no. We get you. Have a strong, long password. And strong, long, speak. unique password. Because if you were impacted in that breach, it would be a minimal impact because you're using a unique password. There you go. Have a good day, everyone. Uh, I'm going to go down the vulnerability um, route because I think, you know, that whole triage bit that we talked around um, is a bit of a skill in itself. You know, being able to um, understand a vulnerability from it, you know, technical details of a, of a vulnerability. Um, and then go going away and doing some research and putting together, uh, you know, information from different areas to to enable you to kind of draw a conclusion around how likely this is. So the way I'd say is go out there and practice it a little bit. Go, just go, just find a vulnerability that's been released recently, and then start, you know, start up a document, put it in, and, and then start trying to pull together information and just practice that process. Yeah, really good point. And for me, my key takeaway is going back to our topic of the week, looking at the different types of black hat hackers. Understand the threat that they pose to your organization. We'll touch on in another podcast episode in the future around threat modeling, but really try to understand the different types of black hats there are, the threat that they may, may pose to your organization, the tools they might use. And again, it goes back to what we've already mentioned. Understand the tools they use. Understand the hacker mindset for each level from a script kiddie right the way through an, an APT and start looking for those indicators of compromise and indicators of attack throughout your network and organisation. So there we have it, end of the podcast this week, guys. Thank you very much for joining me, as always. Our listeners, thank you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed, and we will catch you all in the next episode.